This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Leanne Christian is the Deputy Director of the Community Services Division for DDS. With over 30 years of experience in providing person-centered direct and clinical services, and before joining DDS in 2017, she was the chief clinical officer at the Regional Center of Orange County. And Dr. Lauren Libero was previously a UC President's postdoctoral fellow at the UC Davis Mind Institute and is now the autism expert specialist at the California DDS, where she provides expertise and conducts research on autism and associated conditions. She also coordinates efforts with the department, regional centers, stakeholders, and universities, as well as other state agencies. So let's welcome Lauren and... Leanne, to the podium. Are you going to talk at the same time? Or? Not at the same time, but <laughs> <laughs> That would be good. I'm going to talk, then she's going to talk, then I'm going to talk. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we will do our best to um, follow the green, yellow, and red lights to keep on time. Uh, first, I really just want to thank... Um, everyone, we're happy to be here on behalf of uh, Director Nancy Bargeman, who isn't able to be here today, and thank you for the introduction. Um, in the next 30 minutes, what we want to do is give you just a high-level overview of uh, the developmental disability services system in California. I know many of you are familiar with it, working inside the system, uh, and some of the changing uh, uh, information about the population of folks that we're serving and some of the priorities and initiatives that we're working on. Okay, perfect. We have no uh, conflicts of interest to disclose. In our talk today, we're just going to give an overview of uh, the Department of Developmental Services DDS, regional centers, the population served in trends, and priorities and initiatives. And our learning objectives are uh, identifying some major trends in the characteristics of the individuals that we serve and, again, the priorities and initiatives for our system. So uh, although many of you know, we'll just go through this quickly and get to the meat of the presentation. Uh, DDS is the state agency that's responsible for overseeing the coordination and provision of services and supports for now over 333,000 individuals, uh, Californians with developmental disabilities. And we contract with 21 regional centers, uh, nonprofit private organizations who are geographically located across the state uh, to provide those local services and supports to individuals. And all the services and supports are provided in accordance with the, the Lanterman Act. Um, just for some uh, general information, in this current fiscal year, the budget for the developmental services system is $7.4 billion, and the governor's budget for next fiscal year, 1920, includes $7.8 billion for the system. And the 21 regional centers employ about 7,300 personnel and operate in over 70 different offices throughout the state, which is really kind of the heart of the Lanterman Act in that local um, 
presence, and support of communities. And there are over 423,000 service providers, including families, and um, excluding families, about 43,000 service providers throughout the state. I think this is a good visual of, of the system that uh, just shows kind of that how we are um, operated. And to just bring your attention to the state-operated services, which I think historically um, folks have kind of talked about DDS oversees the developmental centers. We've changed our language as the system is moving much more towards being an almost entirely community-based service system to saying state-operated versus vendor-operated services. And through the department, the state-operated services include services to individuals who are residing in developmental centers. And as of December 2018, uh, Sonoma Developmental Center um, closed and the last individual moved into their new home in the community. And over the, over the next several, um, over at least the next year or more, uh, about 118 additional individuals from from Fairview Developmental Center and Porterville uh, Developmental Center's general treatment area will be moving into the community. So um, similar to national trends, our system again is really moving to be an almost entirely community-based service system. Um, and not sure how much people have kind of thought about that as a historic event in our state, but in 1968, about 13,000 people were living in developmental centers. And uh, as of um, January, uh, there were less than 400 people living in developmental centers. So that has been a push of the system uh, since the Lannerman Act came into effect and really was focused on developing a robust community service system. And then, of course, uh, we contract as a department with the 21 regional centers who, in turn, um, provide local case management and who um, vendor the providers who provide the services and supports to individuals. Kind of as uh, key responsibilities for DDS is that broad policy and statewide leadership, studying, setting priorities, uh, setting standards and procedures that kind of guide the operation of the service system across the state, monitoring service delivery, and um, providing technical support when issues come up, um, providing support to regional centers, the provider community, um, and the individuals we serve. Many of you work at regional centers. Um, and here I think what's really critical to say is that the face of our service system is really the service coordinator. That is the person who families meet. That's the face of our entire service system and that relationship that's built uh, to ensure that, that uh, individuals and their families get the services and supports they need. And, and again, kind of that foundation of the Lannerman Act, that 21 regional centers are geographically located to understand and support the unique needs of their community. So uh, the, the services include intake and assessment, uh, helping individuals advocate for themselves and also helping advocate for them, assisting with access to uh, resources that are available in the community, and of course, for funding services uh, that individuals need.
And then just briefly touching on eligibility for uh, regional center services. Um, it's all up here on, on the slide. Eligible, you're eligible if prior to um, age of 18 you have a, a qualifying disability. That's expected to be lifelong. And in addition, that, um, that is substantially disabling for you and, and um, provides uh, significant functional limitations in several areas of, of major life activity. So now on to the more exciting <laughs> data. Okay, so we have 21 regional centers across the state. Um, each regional center represents um, its own catchment area, so the regional centers are geographically diverse as well as um, in terms of their population. Our smallest regional center is Redwood Coast. They serve uh, 3,900 individuals. Our largest regional center is Inland Regional Center, who serves 35,500 individuals um, as of January of this year. And you can see there's a wide range um, across all 21 in terms of how many individuals they serve. Okay, in terms of our total state population over the last 10 years, we've seen a 42% increase uh, in the number of individuals that we serve. So in 2008, our total was 232,000. Um, as of this year, uh, we're at 333,000 individuals total. Um, and our individuals are broken down into two groups on the graph here. In gray, you'll see our early start kiddos. Uh, these are children under the age of three. And then in blue, these are our Lanterman eligible individuals. So these are individuals age three and up who meet the criteria that Leanne just described. Um, and in addition to that, we have individuals who are currently under assessment at the regional centers um, to receive eligibility for either Early Start or Lanterman Regional Center services. Um, and uh, in January, we had 12,500 individuals who are currently in the assessment phase. Uh, so the regional centers are really busy in terms of bringing individuals in to assess them. Um, for eligibility and then making them eligible and coordinating all of their services. Um, okay. So let's look uh, deeper at what our population looks like. So in terms of their living arrangements, um, over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in the number of individuals who are residing in the home of their uh, family, parent, or guardian. Um, and we've seen a decrease in almost every other residence type. So you can see at the very top there, um, the percentage of individuals in developmental centers is going down. And obviously, we're moving them out into the community, so that was expected. Um, but we've seen actually a 60% growth in the number of consumers who are living in the home um, due to our increasing caseload of children. So uh, we're seeing a, a large growth in the number of individuals under 22 who we serve, and obviously most of them are going to be living in the home of their uh, parent or guardian. Um, however, across the lifespan, we're also seeing an increase in the number of adults who we serve who are choosing to live at home. We're seeing that more often than we did 10 years ago, and you can see that um, in the bars on the bottom there. So 10 years ago, 74% were living in the home of a parent, family, or guardian, um, and in 2018, it was 80% of who the regional centers serve. Okay, we're also seeing a change in the landscape of uh, the racial and ethnic makeup of the individuals in our system. 
And this is similar to what we see across the state of California in general. Um, but the largest shift has been um, in uh, Hispanic or Latino individuals that we serve. So we've seen an increase uh, in individuals who identify as Hispanic or Latino. Ten years ago, they were 34% of our population, and now they are 39%. Um, whereas we've seen a decrease in the share of individuals who identify as white or Caucasian, 39% um, in, in 2008, now they represent 31%. Um, so their share has gone down. Um, I should also note half of the Hispanic population is in the 3 to 21 year group. So we see a large increase, uh, particularly in childhood, for that ethnic group, whereas only a third of uh, the white or Caucasian group is in that same age range. Um, so we see uh, more of the share of individuals who are white are actually adults right now. Um, and then overall, there are at least 23 ethnicities and 45 different languages identified by our consumers across the state. So we're seeing a big shift in terms of the racial and ethnic makeup of the individuals that we serve. And I think that that's an important indicator of um, making sure that our services uh, and supports are all going to be linguistically uh, accessible to individuals and culturally sensitive and appropriate um, for the children and adults that we serve. Um, so we will probably see some, some shift in the way that our system is going to need to uh, be uh, supporting individuals um, of all uh, ethnicities. Okay, we're seeing um, some changes in terms of the ages of the individuals that we're serving, um, and we're seeing that individuals with disabilities are living longer. So 10 years ago, 8% of our population was 52 or older. Today, it's 10%, so that group is uh, increasing, um, which is great. Okay, all right. Um, in terms of the five diagnostic groups um, that are eligible for services, those include autism, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, intellectual disability, and then other, which is our fifth category, and this would be disabilities um, that are similar in nature to uh, intellectual disability. Um, we're seeing changes in the share of these, um, and I do want to note uh, that these aren't mutually exclusive categorizations, so an individual could have more than one diagnosis, and they're going to be counted more than once here. So if you're trying to add up the bars, they may add up to more than 100%, and that's why. Um, but the key takeaway here is um, over the last 10 years, we've seen an increase in the share of individuals who have a diagnosis of autism. So they've risen from 19% to 38%, whereas the share of all other diagnostic groups have been declining um, over the last 10 years. Okay. And so looking deeper at uh, the population of individuals with autism, um, these would be uh, the individuals with autism um, 10 years ago in 2008 in blue, and then in orange, this is 2018. So you can see a big rise in the number of individuals with autism in our system. Um, we actually saw an increase of 175% over the last 10 years. You can contrast that to our total growth that I told you about was 42% for our, for our entire population. So we're really seeing a disproportionate growth in the number of individuals who have autism. Um, and the totals have changed from 38,558 in 2008 to now we just hit 106,000 individuals who have autism. 
And if you look closely at the graph here, they're binned by age group, um, three to five on the left, going all the way up to 62 plus. You probably notice the bulk of the bars here are on the left side, so at the younger ages. So you see the tallest bars are at the youngest age uh, groups there. And we see, um, well, that came out funny. Um, 80% of the total population of individuals with autism are under 22. So most of those folks who have autism that we're serving are children. Um, so that's going to have some important implications for how we serve these individuals um, as they age. We're going to see a, a sharp increase in the number of individuals with autism who are going to be transitioning from the school system into young adulthood. Um, and looking at the graph on the right here, this is all of the individuals that we serve who are under 22, and uh, autism makes up 60%. So they're making up more than half um, of the children that we serve uh, in our service system. Okay, so our increase in autism has pretty strong implication for our service delivery system and being prepared to support uh, individuals who are on the spectrum. Um, this has become a focus of our department and probably the primary reason for um, my position um, in the department, but uh, this isn't precluding our work for all of the other diagnostic types. Um, our, our department is still dedicated to serving individuals of all developmental disabilities, um, and the services and supports that we develop um, and prioritize are going to be um, with uh, the thought in mind that we want to serve everyone that we can um, in the best way possible. You ready? So as Lauren um, went through, you can see a lot of the changing demographics of the individuals we serve. And so as we're identifying those changing, the, the, the trends that are changing in our, in our population, we're all also trying to learn what their changing needs and expectations are of the service system. And, and I think one of the things that the department has really uh, spent a lot of time on and continues to be committed to is community engagement so that we can have ongoing discussions with stakeholders to learn about what their needs and expectations are from the service system. So in addition to um, just kind of the national trends, particularly in their focus on community-based services and decreasing or closing developmental centers, we are also relying on that information that we're gathering from stakeholders to determine what the department's priorities and initiatives are in these coming years. Because as we see in, um, as Director Bargeman would say, we have new architects of our service system. And so we're listening to them to see what that service system needs to look like and the expectations of what life is like in the community, where you live, what you do during the day, um, the relationships that you develop all have to be acknowledged. And so as far as the priorities and initiatives, the first thing I just want to touch on is that developmental center closure talked about it a little bit, but in 2012, there was a moratorium on um, anyone moving into the developmental center, and then in 2015, there was uh, the closure plan for three of the developmental centers, Sonoma, which closed in December, Fairview Developmental Center, and Porterville Developmental Center's general treatment area, which are scheduled um, in that um, closure plan to close in 2021. Um, 
by the end of 21, 2021 then, um, and much likely very, and likely more, ugh, likely sooner than 2021, given that 118 people are um, actively transitioning into the community, we are, we are really focused on community development and what we need to be doing to not only develop resources for the individuals transitioning from developmental centers into the community, which of course has been the major focus over the past couple of years, but also to be developing uh, resources for individuals who never have lived in or never would have um, lived in a developmental center, particularly those individuals who have very complex medical, behavioral, and psychiatric needs. And so through the Developmental Services Task Force, which is a statewide task force, through other community um, uh, engagement, we have developed new service models. Residential has been the primary focus to, to assist in having people have good quality lives in the community and homes that address their challenging medical and behavioral and psychiatric needs. Um, but also importantly, looking at what those resource, what that resource development or community development needs, needs to look like given how many people are living at home and want to stay living at home. So I think the most important note here is that our community development has to meet the changing needs of, of the people that we serve, and it has to keep pace with those needs, which I think um, is something that we continue to, to work on. Um, in addition to that, I think one of the things that has come up as a system issue is how do we do that in not only a timely way but in a sustainable way and we don't have time in our short in our short time here but one of the barriers potentially to developing needed resources is making sure that providers have sustainable rates and so I just want to quickly mention the department's um, uh, requirement to to engage in a rate study and that you can get a lot of information about the results of the rate study and some of the proposed new rate models on the DDS website. Um, as far as the safety net, as a result of input from that uh, Developmental Services Task Force and other stakeholder engagement, uh, in 2017 the department released a safety net or crisis plan and the focus of that safety net was really ensuring that crisis services and services that would prevent crisis were developed or expanded in the community to support people moving out of the developmental center and also, again, to um, ensure that individuals who are living at home um, can stay at home and not be placed in more restrictive settings. So the safety net plan itself, which is not a one-time document but an ongoing planning process, has been looking at how to develop crisis services, mobile crisis services, acute crisis services throughout the community, as well as some of those intensive support models and residential settings to help people so that they can avoid going to more restrictive settings. It is really hard to do these priority areas that could take up their own time in um, more than 30 minutes. Um, the next one is home and community-based services. Rules in January 2014, the um, Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, issued new rules to enhance home and community-based services, and those 
um, homes and programs have to meet those new criteria by March 2022 to qualify um, for federal programming. And so in the past budget acts, there's been money allocated to the department to assist providers and changing their practices, uh, changing whatever they need to to come into compliance with with those rules. And the and the final rule really focuses on um, what is very consistent and aligned with the Landerman Act with regards to um, making sure that individuals are integrated in their communities, have opportunities to participate in their community, and have full access to to the benefits of of living in their community. Uh, the self-determination program, uh, Governor Brown signed that into law in October 2013, and the department um, and, and the goal was establishing a statewide self-determination project so that individuals and families could have more freedom and control and responsibility over the services and supports that they receive in order to meet the objectives um, that they set forth in, in their individual program plan. And so DDS has been working with the stakeholder advisory group over the past several years to develop the framework of that self-determination project. It did get approval from CMS in June of last year. And so um, in the phase in of the program, 2,500 participants were selected in October 2018, and now the process currently is that regional centers and local advisory committees are, are receiving training on how to conduct their own orientations in their local communities with participants as the program is moving forward. For competitive integrated employment, um, this effort really began in 2014, and it is an, an interdepartmental um, project with Department of Developmental Services, Department of Rehabilitation, and the Department of Education, um, and a variety of other stakeholders, developing a blueprint for community and integrated employment, which was released in May of 2016. And the purpose of that blueprint is to improve collaboration between departments so that, so that we can all help prepare and support individuals who have intellectual and developmental disabilities um, to have opportunities and um, it, to join the workforce. And it's really focused on increasing those opportunities to prepare for and participate in uh, competitive integrated employment and just to make sure that people are informed about the decisions, the options that they really have to join the workforce and what kind of supports they can get to prepare for that transition to it after school and engage in it throughout their adulthood. Um, since 2016, uh, DDS has implemented two programs that have had an impact on a couple of thousand people to date and those are paid internship program and uh, competitive employment incentive payment programs to help get people experience with and, uh, and into situations that lead towards um, uh, integrated employment. And then the last priority that we're going to talk about today is the Disparity Funds Project. Um, annually, the, the department and regional centers collaborate to gather um, information through the purchase of service, and what over the years has been indicated is that there are significant disparities that exist in, in, uh, among some regional center populations, particularly uh, along the lines of race and ethnicity. And in 2016, a section was added to the Welfare and Institutions Code al allocating $11 million annually to 
the department to assist regional centers in implementing strategies that reduce those disparities. Um, in Budget Act, since 2016, that $11 million was expanded to fund projects through the regional centers and also through community-based organizations. And um, in the past fiscal year, actually in this current fiscal year, 1819, we approved 70 projects and 32 have just come to an end at the end of December 2018. And so we're in the process of working with the regional centers on gathering um, outcome information and, and being able to present that information to the community. But the projects have really focused on helping uh, increase access to information about services through the regional center system, providing assistance to families and individuals during the intake process, and emp just empowering people to understand and the system and advocate for their needed services. And then finally, um, again, just kind of a, I know, very high-level overview with um, lots of details that, that hopefully would be available on our website if you're interested in a particular priority area. Um, I think that one of the key things, again, in looking at the trends in our population is that we really are committed and want to hear from, from our stakeholder groups and work collaboratively with the regional centers to meet the changing needs um, to keep pace with those changing needs so that people can have quality lives, uh, healthy and safe lives uh, where they want to live and be doing what they want to do with their days. And um, we really hope that just this high level um, has been useful to you. And again, on behalf of Director Bargeman, want to thank you for, for your time and invitation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.